0: Welcome. I'm Kathy murtaugh Schaefer, and I'm your host for this episode of Heartbeats. This podcast is brought to you by Shipley Cardiothoracic Center, an educational series dedicated to providing our patients and the community with information and education about our cardiothoracic surgery program and other issues that affect your health. This today is a second in a series of podcasts dedicated to our female listeners and celebrating the Women's Cardiac Surgery Center here at Health Park in Fort Myers. Today's podcast also celebrates our continued collaboration with our cardiology colleagues, without whom a lot of this would not be possible. Our guest today is Dr. Anita Arnold, who is board certified in cardiovascular disease, internal medicine, and interventional cardiology. She did a fellowship in cardiovascular disease at the Cleveland Clinic and today her practice focuses on cardio-oncology. Welcome, Dr. Arnold. I'm so happy to have you join us today. Perhaps we can start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became involved in cardio-oncology and why this field of cardiology appeals to you. Thank you so much,
1: Kathy. It's a pleasure being here, and I think this inaugural program is terrific. Telling everybody about some of the work that we're doing here at Lee Memorial with the Shipley Center. So let me tell you a little bit about It It is a new passion of mine, and oncology is actually a subset. As subspecialty of cardiovascular medicine, we do not yet have fellowship designation for that, like interventional, Mm -hmm. like EP, like heart failure, because it is so new. It is, however, not uncommon to have heard of cardiovascular, cardiotoxicity with cancer therapies. We know about anthracyclines for many, many years. I personally got interested in cardiology when I was very young. Um, All of my elder family members, grandparents, grandma, grandpa, elderly aunts, um, all died of heart disease. And I remember being very young asking my father, why did grandma not live? And they said the doctors couldn't do anything for her. And that struck me as, well, then we need a better doctor (laughs) So in my naivete, I decided I would be a cardiologist, I would marry a cardiologist, I would have cardiology covered for my whole family. My father had his first heart attack at 43. Oh, my. Uh, So it turned out to be uh, um, interesting. However, after that, everybody in my family started getting cancer. My father died of cancer, my brother died of cancer, I developed cancer, my mother-in-law got cancer, oh my. my father-in-law got three kinds of cancer, my husband's grandfather died of lymphoma, and his grandmother had colon wow. cancer. So all of a sudden, the exposure shifted, and I started reading more and understanding that virtually all of the cardiotoxicity can be associated with some form of cancer therapy, be it hypertension, be it severe hyperlipidemia, ischemic heart disease, valvular heart disease. And we're talking about chemotherapy, we're talking about the immunotherapies, and we're talking about radiation therapy. So all of those can have an effect on the heart. Wow, that's a a pretty impressive
0: family history for sure. I know you are a board of directors member of the International Cardio-Oncology Society, whose goal is to reduce cardiovascular disease in cancer patients. And I was so impressed by the diversity and internationality of the members of this society. I bet this is a great group to be a part of. Can you tell our listeners what you've seen accomplished by this society and why this group is so important, particularly to women?
1: Yes, I'd be delighted to. I joined ICOS a number of years ago when there was a a global cardio-oncology summit in Tampa. And when I saw the variety of people that were involved from a cardiovascular point of view and an oncologic point of view. ICOS is an organization for anyone who takes care of cancer patients. So um, nutritionist, uh, physical therapy, rehab, exercise physiology, cardiology, electrophysiology, heart failure specialists, oncology, um, basic science members are all involved in ICOS. Part of what's interesting i also chair the education committee and this is really interesting because it's an international group so for example in poland they have a separate hematologist and a separate oncologist but here in the us together together so -hmm. it's a little bit different so seeing how other people not only care for their cancer patients we're also looking internationally for best practices so the education committee in particular it has a whole group that's looking at cardiotoxicities and how we can avoid them, what we can do up front. What are the best practices? And we're asking people internationally. So it's very interesting. In the United States, we're not very biomarker driven. In other words, we don't get pro-BNPs, we don't get troponins Mm -hmm. for many different reasons where that is standard of practice in, for example, Italy. They do it on every cancer patient so they can assess whether or not they're having some cardiotoxicity very early in in the situation. So ICOS has been extremely helpful. The president of ICOS right now, is Susan Dent, who is a breast oncologist mm-hmm. from Duke, and she transferred there from Canada where she started the Canadian Oncology Network. So she's a very established researcher and just a delight to work with. And so we have a lot of focus on breast cancer and cardiovascular disease, and so a lot of the studies that are going on and a lot of the efforts are related to that. If someone's going to get cardiotoxicity, it is more likely to be a woman because of the breast cancer and the location referable to the heart.
0: What a great group, though, as far as diversity is concerned so much to be learned from other people's practices and how different things are in Europe or Australia or wherever compared to what we do here.
1: Right. And there's also a separate group looking at the genomics of cancer and cancer therapies. In mm -hmm. other words, some of the things that we do here are usually driven by research that's male-oriented and white. So, for example, in Japan, obviously, we're getting a different population. Mm -hmm. So we are trying to look at information that's coming from all over. And I think it really speaks to best practices because the Education Committee is also partnering with the Advocacy Committee and the Patient Education Committee. And there's a nurses group that's kind of driving that. Mm -hmm. And so we're working with the team at MD Anderson. There's a member from the UK. There's somebody from um, Washington University, someone from Brazil. So when you have that kind of energy in a room, be it Zoom or otherwise, it's extremely interesting. Oh, how exciting. Of- Data comes out, a lot of um, what if we tried this? What if we said that? What if we looked at this? And that's something that in private practice today, you're so overwhelmed with Mm -hmm. COVID and everything else that's going on that you kind of lose a little bit of this. And I call it the energy. The energy from having a discussion with someone else really goes a long way. And I think it's going to benefit women in general and cancer patients everywhere.
0: I I would comment to say that how lucky you are to be working with global energy. There are an estimated 14 million cancer survivors in the United States due to the success of cancer treatment. But one of the major issues survivors have is the development of coronary artery disease or other diseases of the heart that contribute to early deaths and disability more so than their age-matched counterparts who have not had chemo. Is there a particular cancer that has demonstrated more cardiotoxicity than others when combined with chemotherapy, and do we know if the cardiotoxicity is related to the combination of the type of cancer... And treatment, or is it re- related directly to the treatment?
1: So you are correct. Um, there are more than 14 million cancer survivors now, and that number is going up dramatically every year to the point that by the time 2020, com- 2024, I'm sorry, there will be another 50%. Most of those patients, 85% of them will be over the age of 50. Wow. So it speaks to mm-hmm. an older population, which is ripe for coronary artery right. disease and heart disease anyway. And And it is predominantly women because women live longer. Anyway, mm-hmm. and so it, it, it goes together like that. So it's really kind of interesting. The group that seems to have the most cardiotoxicity, though, to be honest with you, are the childhood cancer survivors. Oh. These are the lymphomas. Mm-hmm. These are the um, uh, mantle radiations, yeah. the mm-hmm. leukemias. Most of the childhood cancers, 85% of those kids are going to survive, which is great. But if you take a four-year-old who got, for example, anthracyclines, which is a sinequinone for a cardiotoxicity. Um, and then 20 years later, they're only 24. And so they will show cardiotoxicity mm. earlier. And it might not be like fulminant heart failure, but you will see a decrease in exercise tolerance. You'll see arrhythmia, you'll see, um, hyperlipidemia. So what we have noticed is that one is the childhood cancer group that we need to, um, keep an eye on. And that's why, um, the cardio oncology department here at Lee um, has partnered with Golisano and we will take care of adolescents and young adults, the AYA population as they call it these days, so that we can get them in with adult cardiology, because by the time they're 16, 17, 18, they really belong to an adult Mm -hmm. cardiologist. Right. So we will see Mm -hmm. those patients. And so we're trying to work on survivorship with them, which is the most interesting population. We could have a whole one hour discussion on how best to treat them. And then the other group we work with are um, anybody who's getting either an anthracycline derivative, which is a lot of the breast cancers Mm -hmm. or some of the solid tumors. Some of the immunotherapies, and then some of the radiation therapies, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But which population? Every single cardiovascular study that has looked at cardiotoxicity, when they look at the baseline risk assessment of that patient, if you have hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, you know, our classic mm-hmm. uh, cardiac patient, you will do worse. It will do worse in the long run Mm. based on cancer and based on cardiovascular toxicity. Toxicity. So there are millions of cancer patients in the United States. We are not saying every single one has to go to a cardio-oncologist to be overwhelmed. However... But we're trying to figure out who are the high-risk people. So we already know it's the childhood cancers. We know certain types of drugs that people get. We need to monitor them closer. And then anybody who has had radiation to the to the chest. So it's breast cancer, esophageal cancer, gastric cancer, mm-hmm. lung cancer. Those patients need to be watched a little bit um, closer. It seems like a... Uh, I- a
0: great opportunity for partnership would be with the OBGYNs, because women often don't present to a physician after the age of 18 until they have their first child, and right. and their OBGYNs tend to become their the primary, primary care. care. Yeah.
1: Sure. So I think that speaks to two things. One is um, You and I both know, and for years, it seems like the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology has been um, trying to get the word out heart disease is the number one killer of women. And when we say heart disease, we mean heart disease, stroke, heart failure kind Mm -hmm. of all together. But every time they do a survey of women, only about half realize that. So the latest survey that came out was 56% of women will say, yes, heart disease is, is the number one killer of women. Many women are more afraid of breast cancer, Mm -hmm. but it's only one in eight are going to get breast cancer where one in two get heart disease. And there's two women in this room. Right, right, right. What's a little bit disappointing, unfortunately, is that the underserved population and uh, the diverse population is not as aware. They're about 30 percent understanding that that is a risk factor for them Mm -hmm. and what we have also learned the risk factors for coronary artery disease and heart disease are the same risk factors for cancer so diabetes uncontrolled Uh, um, weight Mm -hmm. um, diet lack of exercise alcohol abuse Mm -hmm. yes they're all related and so it it gives us an opportunity to work with certain groups for example one of the groups we're working with is Radiology, the radiologists who read the mammograms. Mm-hmm. So they're looking for calcifications that look like a cluster of um, cancer cells. But we have asked them, "Can you please tell me, are there calcifications in the arteries of, in the breast? Mm-hmm. Because if you have calcification there, then we're going to start looking for calcification in other
0: places. Right? Yeah, and that really yeah. helps
1: us. So I think your your word collaboration is really what we're trying to drive here. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of information you can get from a good history and physical and all of the tests that you order. When an oncologist orders a CT scan of the chest, we ask them, could you comment on um, atherosclerosis of the Mm coronary arteries Mm or the aorta? The size of the aorta is a little bit dilated so that you get as much information as possible to take care of that patient in totality. These days, people will survive their cancer but they are ripe then for cardiac toxicity afterwards. And that, that really is important. And a lot of patients are a little distressed by that. Um, obviously, they don't want to have one problem. And, and then, then go to another, to
0: another right.
1: But if you think about it, so many of my patients now that I take care of from a purely cardiovascular point of view wind up getting some form of cancer, the men will get prostate cancer, the women will get breast cancer, lung cancer, something like that. And so now we need to focus on treating the cancer, but not exacerbating the cardiovascular situation.
0: Dr. Arnold, would you explain a little bit by what explain what you mean by the term cardiotoxicity?
1: That's another good question because when you look at all the research studies, The FDA sometimes called cardiotoxicity if the patient complained of shortness of breath. Well, that could be so many different things. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things we're working on is standardizing the definition of cardiotoxicity. In general, we are talking about vascular disease associated with whatever therapy they're getting, valvular disease, myocardial disease, either early onset pericarditis, myocarditis, especially with some of the CAR T cells or immune checkpoint inhibitors, mm-hmm. they can cause a raging um, myocarditis down to heart failure in the later stages, um, peripheral vascular disease, arterial occlusion, venous occlusion, mm-hmm. stroke, arrhythmia, you name it, it can happen, those with, happen. with those yeah. things. So, So when we say cardiotoxicity, it's become kind of a general term for vascular and cardiac abnormalities, including, for example, arrhythmia. In the past, it was a drop in ejection fraction. However, drugs that we know will drop your ejection fraction, we will do screening for that. And that we have come up with a definition, normal ejection fraction is 53% or higher, Mm -hmm and global longitudinal strain, which we can talk about in a minute, is a new parameter that we started measuring in oncology patients. That has to be minus 18 or a higher number than that. And then we look at um, the drop, and if it's a significant drop, more than 10%. Uh, of either of those, then we start to worry. Or if you start seeing a pattern, somebody has an injection of 75%, then the next time 65%, then the next time 55%. That's telling you, and that's where the Europeans love to use biomarkers, because Uh after your chemotherapy, if we draw, let's say, a troponin, and it's elevated, that would speak to some cardiotoxicity during that infusion. And so maybe we'll watch you a little bit more carefully. And
0: I guess one of the comments that I would make to that is we we know our patients tend to drift from doctor to doctor, and so you might see a patient that has an EF of 65%, but it had been 70, but you don't know that, and you're considering that normal, as would I. And then the next doctor sees the patient, and it's 55%, and we
1: don't realize. We've dropped from 70 to 55. And I think, again, that speaks to the universality of trying to coordinate yeah. electronic mm-hmm. records. And you know, here in Florida, we have the snowbird population. So if someone's treated up north and then comes down, they really don't bring all their records with them. Right. Um, the oncology team is usually pretty good. And that care everywhere has been mm-hmm. helpful. But you're exactly right, because a lot of the times the patients, I try and educate my patients. The more they know, the more they can help me, mm-hmm. and the more they can help the next doctor. So I explain to them exactly what I'm looking for and why that's important. That doesn't mean, Let's say the person is um, so jacked up when they go get their first echo because they've been told it has to be normal. Oh, she yeah. doesn't say it's yeah, normal. You right. can't get chemo. And then, you know, one thing leads to another and the person's thinking, oh, my God, this person is and now their blood pressure high. is sky high, Blood pressure is high, heart yeah. rate's high, ejection fraction 75 percent. The next time they come in, they're feeling good. Everything's OK. The blood pressure's better. So it's definitely related to their their loading conditions, their mm-hmm. blood pressure. And sure. that needs to be looked at because we have seen, as you're saying, um, people being told you can't have any more chemo because you dropped from 65 to 55. Well, the first thing I do is repeat it with the same loading conditions yeah. and relaxing yeah. the person and stuff like that. And if it's perfectly normal, then we we can address that. But I think that's really important. Every cardio-oncology meeting we have, we hear horror stories of people who are told you can't have any more chemotherapy yeah. because your heart is. That's
0: devastating. It very That's difficult. devastating. And it
1: puts the patient in a very awkward position mm-hmm. because they were told by, quote, a specialist who right. said you can't. Right. And the oncologist said we have to press forward.
0: Seems like um, it might be helpful, useful to also educate our um, sonography staff mm-hmm. so that they understand when a patient comes in and the anxiety level yes. is that high, it might pay to take a little bit of time.
1: Yes, and just relax a little little bit. Absolutely.
0: As you mentioned, we used to judge cardiotoxicity mainly by measuring the left ventricle function or what we know as the ejection fraction. And for our listeners, the ejection fraction is a measurement of how much blood the left lower chamber of the heart pumps out into the aorta when it squeezes. And as Dr. Arnold mentioned, 55 and above is considered normal. Are there other markers that indicate toxicity? You mentioned biomarkers.
1: Yes. So let me just back up for 10 seconds. When we report an echo, as I'm sure you know, we usually do a 5%, 50, 55, 45, Mm -hmm. 50. And the reason for that is because visually your brain and your eyes can only distinguish a 5% Hmm. change. So it's not that exact. Okay, so now I do a report that says, uh, 45 to 50, and they go to the oncologist. And the oncologist says, well, is it 45 or is it 50? Because I can give a drug if it's 50. I can't give a drug if it's 45. So they were pushing us very hard. Find a more elegant way of mm-hmm. assessing this. So people were using mug scans for a while where you inject a radioactive material. Yes. And then basically it just counts the number of particles that, that leave the heart. And it gave you a number. However, it's radioactive. And that's kind of the last thing I want to give right. you <laughs> right, More right, to the heart. So that kind of fell out of favor. And what uh, became more interesting is, you know, when we do echo, we do multiple views. And so there was um, a group of engineers who said, well, we can do a better job by looking at smaller sections of Mm -hmm. the myocardium. Mm -hmm. So what they did was they did this speckle. So they put little tiny dots all the way around the myocardium and then they calculate how much uh, they come together yeah. so now I have uh, multiple views multiple points and I can calculate very elegantly because you can have a normal ejection fraction and have lost one whole wall of your heart because the yes. rest is hyperdynamic. Yes. but yes. we need to know that we need to know that that wall is no good so it's called global longitudinal strain, GLS. And because the, the particles came together, that's a smaller number. So you want a big negative number, which is big. So you want minus 18, minus 19, minus 20. You want okay. those kind of numbers. Okay. So let's say we have an ejection fraction of what's read as 5055, mm-hmm. but the global longitudinal strain is minus 14. Okay, that is abnormal. If the global longitudinal strain is minus 20, then you'll feel a bit better about that. Mm -hmm. So we use both of those numbers together. The other thing we use is MRI uh, to see if there's late gadolinium enhancement. um, And that's kind of helpful. Are you starting to get some fibrotic changes? Are there other things? We use it also for uh, myocarditis, with Mm -hmm. immune checkpoint inhibitors. So that's been quite helpful um, as well. But MRI is... uh, Different animal, uh, how you get it reimbursed, things like that. There are other issues. We use um, CT scans um, to help. And then the biomarkers, because the biomarkers are helpful in telling me, do you have ongoing? So it's not just the troponin, it's also the BNP, which Mm -hmm. would speak to a heart Heart failure. not not as vigorous as Mm -hmm. you would like it to be. Yeah.
0: What can be done when a woman comes to you with what I call toxic? heart syndrome is this a permanent condition
1: okay so any patient who has had cardiotoxic therapy automatically is called stage a heart failure meaning they're more susceptible of something else were to happen to them so the first thing we do is look at wh- what are the other things what is their blood pressure what is their diabetic status what is their exercise capacity things like that do they have ischemia
0: stage a doesn't necessarily mean they're actually feeling sick <laughs> Is that correct? Okay.
1: Exactly. They actually feel pretty good, but they are considered high risk for the development. Okay. Um, It's like a woman who has preeclampsia is more prone to getting hypertension. Hypertension. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, we look at that and if they have had a drop in ejection fraction or cardiac function, we have medication that can help them. So is it permanent? Not necessarily. It also depends what stage in their their cancer journey their mm-hmm. treatment if they have just finished a, a round of anthracycline then mm-hmm. um
0: probably not the best time to make an right a, an opinion right. about it so yeah so
1: really when i see patients um every single patient it, you know even if they're stage four cancer because stage four cancer can still live for a long period of mm-hmm. time that means metastatic outside of the initial organ affected and i want them to live as healthy as possible and have the best function. So, all of their risk factors need to be addressed, even cholesterol. It used to be that you would say, Well, you know, they have so many other pills. The yeah, cow, yeah, they're always mm-hmm. complaining and not feeling so great. I don't want to give them a statin on top of that. Um, but it is really quite helpful. So, there's anecdotal evidence. And this is what's really interesting about when you read everybody else's literature. When you look at breast cancer survivors, all comers, Women who are on statins do better from a cancer point of view Hmm. than women not on statins. Statins are not the treatment for breast cancer. Correct. But it is an interesting signal.
0: Interesting interesting. association. Yeah. Now, if you think about
1: cholesterol, the blood, oil, water, things like that, what a cancer cell tries to do is get where it's not supposed to be so Mm -hmm. that it can take over that cell. Cholesterol has to be transported into the cells. And so they have this layer. It's called a lipid raft where a little piece of cholesterol molecule goes in there and then it gets transported into the cell. It makes it much easier than having this gunk outside yeah. your cells to get yeah. in. Well, there are some cancer therapies that use that. Hitch a ride? Yes. So statins destroy the lipid rafts. Huh. So think about that. Huh. Maybe that is Maybe a that's the, yeah. So there are people much smarter than I who are trying to look at that and say, wow, could that? That's fascinating. Could that work? And so that's what we are looking at. Since the risk factors are so similar, can we do two birds with one stone? Mm-hmm. Can we try and, and help people on multiple levels? So I think some of the stuff that we're going to hear about in the near future is going to be, That is
0: fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the risk factors that a woman needs to be aware of prior to starting chemo or radiation therapy regarding her heart? Obviously, it's a big risk factor if she already has been identified as having heart disease, but what other things put a patient at high risk of developing heart disease after cancer treatment? You mentioned the, the, the typical um, diabetes, high blood pressure, etc. Right.
1: So the better shape that person is in prior to starting any type of therapy for cancer, even the surgery, um, the better off they're gonna be. So the first thing we do is we look at their blood pressure, we look at their heart rate, we look at their weight, we look at the diabetes. So all of those things are important. Then we look at what is the cancer therapy this person's going to get? Mm -hmm. Are they gonna get anthracycline? So we have a scoring system whereby you get one point for this, one point for that. Um, And it's interesting because if you looked at the, AHA-ACC risk calculator, Mm -hmm. and let's say a 22-year-old woman who has triple negative breast cancer who's going to get anthracycline, when you do her calculation, her 10-year risk of cardiovascular disease is nothing. It's It's 0.2%. I was going to
0: say, I don't remember cancer or anything being included in that. It's not. So now
1: when we use our cancer score and plug in four points for anthracycline therapy, all of a sudden that patient is at high risk for the development of of, Mm -hmm cardiotoxicity. So that's why the risk calculators are just not that good. And so we are trying to score every single patient and then say, based on that score, they should probably, you don't have to see cardiology every time, but maybe just check in at the beginning, maybe Mm -hmm. the middle and and, at the end. So we can kind of go over everything. What did you get? So the drugs they are going to get, whether or not they're going to be exposed to um, radiation, ionizing radiation, um, if they're going to have immunotherapy, if they're going to have hormonal manipulation, tamoxifen versus Mm -hmm. an AI Mm -hmm. for men on ADT therapy, um, those make a difference. Even some of the um, oral agents for, let's say, colon cancer, can cause severe, severe, severe hyperlipidemia that needs to be treated really? immediately. I mean, mm-hmm. they can go from having a normal triglyceride to having a triglyceride that's 5,000. Oh, um, wow. So that's really important. Big setup for yes. pancreatitis. And that's an easy one yeah. to check. Mm-hmm. So that's why it really depends on what treatment they're going to get.
0: Are the oncologists on board with all of this um focus on the heart treatment
1: the oncologists in this area are so spectacular I yeah. cannot speak highly enough I get uh, patients um, can you please check this person because I'm going to give them this drug mm-hmm. that prolongs the QT and I'd like them evaluated wow first.
0: that's great yes yeah. or I've
1: started giving this drug the QT was normal and now it's abnormal can you please check them out somebody's complaining of chest pain I know they're on a drug that can cause arterial mm-hmm. embolism can you check them out or a lot of my surgeons, we do a lot of pre, pre-op work. So for example, someone who's having extensive uh, head, head and neck, neck cancer, surgery, mm-hmm. where they're going to have flaps put in and stuff like that, um, if, if they don't have a good enough cardiac output, they're not going to heal well enough, right. and that vasculature right. may not. May not do won't feed the flap, right. So, so we need to help them and optimize their their status as much as possible. A lot of the lung cancer patients obviously have been smokers for a long period of time. They have cardiovascular risk. They have PVD. They might be put on mm-hmm. immunotherapy that can cause venous or arterial embolism. So all of those things need to be checked. They don't need a million dollar workup. They need a really good physical examination and then some basic and a focus workup. So yeah. yes, the oncology and they're becoming more and more aware and it's becoming. Absolutely amazing, some of the drugs coming down the pike. They are just spectacular. Yeah.
0: Wow. Since we began having weekly valve conference, I've noticed that many of our female patients have what we call a hostile chest, meaning that they've had radiation to the chest wall, usually for breast cancer or lymphoma and that radiation has damaged the tissue of the chest, making it extremely fragile and difficult to operate on. In fact, one lady had radiation for breast cancer many years ago, and then more radiation recently due to lymphoma. I'm curious as to what radiation does to the valves of the heart, and is there anything that can be done to protect the valves?
1: The answer is yes. We get a lot of our information about radiation, unfortunately, from the Japanese um, and the atomic bomb situation. Yeah, of course. you know, ground zero, and then mm-hmm. as you follow them out for years, and so we know that radiation can cause valves valvular heart disease. It causes um, both the valves, the pericardium, the myocardium, starts getting fibrotic and mm-hmm. stiff. So when the valves get stiff, similar to aortic stenosis or mitral stenosis, it just doesn't work very well. And those valves are not easy to do valvuloplasty or something like that on. They need to be replaced. Um, the only difference with that is TAVR has been extremely successful in, quote, hostile chest, yes. because you don't want to open that. It's very difficult. It's like uh, cutting through a tremendous amount of scar tissue, layer after layer after layer. It just makes it It's lot like cement when you go in there. Yes, it's very difficult. So then the question comes up, uh, radiation oncology. So 20 years ago, radiation oncology would just kind of blast away yeah. um and because yeah. the focus was the cancer need we didn't have all the drugs we had we didn't have all the immunotherapies and so they needed to upfront do the best kill them the, kill the cancer so yeah. so in order to increase survival they they tra- made some trade-offs nowadays they do some really interesting things so for example for breast cancer if i ask you to take a really deep breath you're going to expand the Mm -hmm. breaths away from your heart and so they do now um deep inspiration breath hold and so they teach the woman take a deep breath Mm -hmm. and so they practice that and so when she goes in to get her therapy it's when she takes a deep breath and she only has to hold it for like 15 seconds or something Mm -hmm. and if for example she coughs and lets go the machine stops so it's kind of elegant the other thing if you think about it if you go prone, so they have special tables where yes, the breasts go yes, through, and mm-hmm. then the heart is above the table, the breasts are below the table, and then they can and they can radiate they can that way. That. I also was at a conference um, three days ago, where a Zoom conference, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, they were showing pictures of how the radiation oncologists now will take the CT scan and map exactly where they want to go, trying to get the best, um, the best angle angles. Mm -hmm. And so they don't get the heart. And so they usually make several treatment plans and then they calculate the mean heart dose and then go with the one that has the smallest mean heart dose. So they're getting much, much better. So really anybody who gets radiation now for for as an adult is probably going to be okay. I tell them in about ten years is the first time I would do something, um, check an echo for mm-hmm. diastolic dysfunction, mm-hmm. or do a cardiac MRI to see are you starting to get fibrotic myocardium or pericardium. It's the children we still have to keep yeah. an eye on yeah. because their life expectancy is pretty good, mm-hmm. so they mm-hmm. will develop they will develop um, issues later on.
0: And my last question. Are there clinical trials locally investigating this particular aspect of cancer and treatment regimens?
1: So there are a lot of studies going on, specifically coming from a cardiovascular point of view. It's limited. Most places are pretty much doing their own studies. So for example, Sloan, Kettering in New York, um, Dana-Farber, mm-hmm. uh, MD Anderson, Penn, uh, Moffitt had some clinical trials in cardiothoracic, but not so much. So we don't have a lot. We are looking actively. This is the type of center that would do very well with doing biomarker studies, ejection fraction mm-hmm. studies. Honestly, if you enrolled a group of breast cancer women and then just followed them longitudinally with more. And things like that. What's difficult is um, getting all the accoutrements you need for a research study, as you know. And then um, there's no way of getting around it. It, it, Medical care in the United States is still very siloed.
0: Yes. So it
1: helps when you have your cardio oncologist very close to where your oncologist is. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of interaction going on there. So I think we still have some work to do but things will be coming. Absolutely. I'm
0: actually amazed at the advances you've been describing today. It's fascinating because I do remember way back when there just wasn't a whole lot out there and we just slammed women in particular with these anthracyclines and radiation
1: and and, and crossed our fingers, essentially. Right. right. And I still have a number of patients who have gotten anthracycline who did not do well with it. Um, and we struggle with how best to take care of that person, uh, because at some point, depending on their age, if they survive their cancer long enough, they will be a heart transplant candidate, mm-hmm. which is a whole nother ball of wax. It's oh, yeah. not something they expected when they started their cancer journey. So we still have that issue. And really, the biggest thing is trying to figure out what is cardioprotective.
0: This has certainly been a very informative conversation. And I think our listeners are going to gain a lot from our conversation. Is there
1: anything you'd like to add before we sign off? Yes, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity. Oh, to, I'm so
0: happy that you came over. To thank be you. Able
1: to to discuss some of the passions in my world. Um, and I refer people to, um, we have a website at Lee, which mm-hmm. we can put some cardio-oncology and the Regional Cancer Center also has a website. There's some cardio-oncology information there. And patientcenteredcardiosource.org is from the American College of Cardiology, and the International Cardio-Oncology Society also has a website where there's a lot of interesting information, and most of that is available to the general public as well.
0: So when we post this podcast, we'll uh, make sure to include in the information those, those links. Thank you so much, Dr. Anita Arnold. This has been a great conversation. Until next time, I'm Kathy murtaugh Schaefer, and this has been Heartbeats, Shipley Cardiothoracic Center's podcast dedicated to bringing research, innovation, and education to our patients and the community.